The supporters of cancel culture or the cancelers, I hope they're taking very vivid note of the steady disappearance of and pressures upon such freedoms all around the world right now. And that to propose cancellation and to advocate any kind of suppression of speech at a time of rising authoritarianism in our country and around the world is the fucking height of irresponsibility. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest this week is editor and cultural critic Leon Weaseltier. Weaseltier was the literary editor for The New Republic from 1983 to 2014, tenure that lasted through multiple regime changes there and effectively made him the face and the figurehead of that magazine. In the fall of 2017, he was set to launch a new publication when he appeared on a list of men in the media accused of various and wide-ranging forms of mostly sexual misconduct. The magazine was immediately pulped and Weaseltier's remaining professional connections were severed almost overnight. After three years out of the public eye, he has reemerged with a new journal called Liberties. With the first issue coming in at more than 400 pages, it's old school in every way. Sprawling yet dense, not all that online, and designed more to challenge readers, even overwhelm them, than to please and placate. But can an old school intellectual with a tarnished reputation make a comeback in these roiling times? Weaseltier spoke with me about both his new project and his long, complicated legacy in the media. We also talked at some length about sexual dynamics in the workplace, in mentor relationships, and whether the Me Too era and his entanglements therein have changed the way he views himself as a man in the world. Leon Weaseltier, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Thank you, Megan. It's nice to be here. The occasion for you being here is to talk about liberties, the quarterly journal which you have founded and which you edit, and the first issue of which is out this month, October of 2020. So we're going to talk about that, of course. But first, I want uh, I want to give listeners, and you can help me out, just a brief history of your career and how liberties came to be. You were the literary editor of the New Republic from... For- Forever, forever, eighteen eighty to twenty fourteen. That's that's what my notes say. It's roughly right. that. So nineteen eighty three to two thousand fourteen. Right. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> people who are only familiar with the most recent incarnation of that magazine might not be aware of how it, much cultural it was significance. A very different magazine. Yeah, there yes. was too, especially to a job like like literary yes. uh, editor. Yes. So, you know, a number of editor-in-chiefs came and went during your tenure and you yes. stayed and remained okay. and became in many ways the foundation and the, the face of, of the Thank magazine. You. So, I mean, just I, I'm going to continue with your with your trajectory. But yes, <laughs> what, comes to mind, what comes to mind when you look back? I mean, it, it, it were you aware at the time of being like the person everybody associated with the magazine, even though you were never the editor in chief? Well, I mean, it was yes and no. Um, I was very blessed to have the support of. Marty Peretz, who owned it for most of, or maybe a little, just a little more than half of my tenure there, 
and had perfect freedom editorially, both in what I published and in what I wrote. And then as owners changed, things got a little more complicated. And as with everyone in this in this unlucky business, um, it became more of a struggle for survival. Uh, but it was, you know, bliss it was, I have to say. It was... Uh, it was a very, I mean, it was an exciting time in which I really felt like I was not having a career, but fulfilling a calling. After the New Republic, after, as it were, my New Republic blew up, I went to Brookings, to the Brookings Institution. Um, it was uh, not a perfect match, but I was able to do some writing there, and I was... Um, hurting for and hungry for a journal, uh, partly because it gives me great pleasure to fulfill my conception of what I think a journal of ideas should be, and partly because I didn't want to withdraw from what was becoming the, the intellectual fight of a lifetime. Uh, and so um, with Laureen Powell Jobs, I, I conceived uh, we conceived the idea of a journal of ideas that would appear six times a year called Idea. And then we, we rented office space from Brookings, hired a small staff, and began to work. When you say the intellectual fight of a lifetime, what do you mean exactly? The um, sustained assault from every side, including from Mars, if there are people up there, on the liberal tradition. Uh, both in politics and in culture, uh, you know, I'm a, I, you know, I'm what would have been called in uh, in the 1950s a welfare state liberal, meaning that um, what that means now is that I am a profound believer in government and in its ability and its obligation to assist the weak and the needy and so on and also in the ability of American power to do good abroad, even though we've committed crimes and abuses. And I could go on right now about what I mean by all that, but I won't, just to say that I began to feel increasingly under, in the Obama administration that a lot of what I believed and other people believed was being discredited or delegitimated, but not refuted by reality. I didn't see things put in put in their place that were doing the job. And uh, and in culture, I began to see that everything was being grossly politicized. And I one of the convictions with which I operate is that there are many realms of human life and none of them can be reduced to one of them. And culture cannot be reduced to politics, at least if it is to survive if it's free and unexpected and spiritually stimulating way. Right. And you think, I mean, even three years ago, that was so much less pronounced than what we're looking at today. Yeah, look, it seems quaint is, when you look back on just three or four years does, ago. It does. But I will say that, you know, Trump, Trump, if you'll pardon the expression, um, was as much an effect as a cause. And uh, I felt throughout Obama's eight years, that it was increasingly a fool's paradise, uh, that the world was becoming more Habesian. We were being daily attacked by Russia. China was on the march. 
unembarrassed about it. And, you know, many things were happening in the world that we chose to look away from. And domestically, I felt that the country just kind of weirdly went on hold. So, you know, just as you can, I know this is heretical to say, but just as you cannot understand the rise of Barack Obama without understanding the previous eight years of George W. Bush, similarly, you cannot understand the rise of Donald Trump without understanding the previous eight years of Obama. So I felt that... I don't think that's heretical. Do you feel heretical saying that? Oh, it was heretical in 2016 and 17, yes. Oh, yes, I was met with many scowls when I suggest this because there are many people around who believe devoutly in the pristinity of Obama. Uh, including Obama himself, I might add. And um, and so, yeah, in the beginning, you were not allowed to connect Trump to Obama in any way except to contrast them as, as, as good and evil. But anyway, it was clear to me, uh, you know, the, new, the old New Republic died in 2014. And, uh, and for years prior to that, it was becoming clear to me that things were changing in some ways for the better, but in many ways for the worse. Uh, And I wanted to get into the fray. So you had idea all teed up. All teed up. First issue was printed. Right. Okay. And in the fall of 2017, your life got thrown into some turmoil. There was a certain degree of turmoil. In in ways you've talked about publicly, your professional connections were severed fairly abruptly. Uh, we can explore. That's a nice way of putting we it. We can yeah. explore that in a bit, but but again, first, I I'm hoping you'll talk about liberties not just as it emerges from the printer now, uh, right. but what you wanted it to be, what you needed it to be, as you sort of constructed it from the ashes of idea and and what your life had been. What I wanted, I wanted a number of things uh, in terms of its style or its um, its approach. I wanted it to be slower, longer, and deeper than almost everything that I saw around. I don't have to tell you that, you know, as historians will eventually record, the single most, the most paradigmatic trait of our time is speed. And speed leads to brevity uh, until we've reached the point where things don't even happen fast anymore. They happen simultaneously. And this makes thinking very hard to do unless you come to the to the maelstrom with a prepackaged set of ideas, which of course many people do. Uh, and so I thought that we liberties would not we would not quote cover close quote anything because first of all we're quarterly. And so, you know, the lead time makes coverage, strictly speaking, impossible. <laughs> right. uh, you know, in fact, you know, the sun rising the next day practically makes coverage yeah. impossible these days. Yeah. But, and there's no but, online, there's not a big online presence. No, no, there isn't. That, there right. isn't. Yeah, I would talk about radical. what we'll have online. Yeah. We're yeah. just about, yeah, I, I want it to be countercultural in a variety of ways. So one of the ways is that, I wanted to deal with larger questions of society, politics, culture, philosophy, religion, technology in longer ways. Um, I want writers to write their hearts or minds out. Um, 
I want them to write exactly as they wish to write. And I want to give our readers a fat issue every three months with lots of stimulating things in it about the larger questions that have led us to this abominable crisis in in culture, in politics, and in foreign affairs in the world. Laura Kipnis on the idea of transgression, Thomas Chatterton Williams on James Baldwin, David Thompson on Terrence Malick, which Sean I was Willen, thrilled Sean to American see on abolition, on abolition, Mark Lilla on indifference, Sally yeah. Sattel on addiction, your managing yeah. editor, Celeste Marcus, has a, a piece about groupthink. Yes, I, I assume you gave your writers free reign. Oh my God, yes. I appear to give them free reign. My view is, as an editor, that... Um, that four-fifths of your job as an editor is done when you've attached the right subject to the right writer. And all I've ever really wanted to be was the first admiring reader of the piece. I'm a, I'm a phenomenally, for a guy who has a reputation as being in some ways in people's faces, I'm a very unaggressive editor. Did the subjects and themes that they chose to write about tell you anything about the preoccupations of the culture right now that surprised you? Were you able to draw out uh, any sort of patterns uh, based on what they wanted to drill down on? That's an interesting question. Uh, I wasn't looking for patterns. As I say, I don't want a, a, uh, I'm not in the business of, uh, of what you might call ideological curation. But and I know many of my writers, and I like to know my writers because, uh, aside from that being a significant part of the pleasure of doing what I do, it also is nice to have what they write come from them and not just from me. And in my conversations with writers in the first issue, in the second issue, which is now more than half complete, it became I saw what people were thinking about, and uh, and I saw that people the people that I would call liberals were beginning to feel very lonely. Um, They were beginning to feel hemmed in on all sides. They were being um, scorned and their expressions were in some ways being suppressed. And I thought it was time to come to the aid of these people and give them heart by allowing them to just say what they want to say. You know, in our country right now, in America in 2020, saying what you want to say is not to be taken for granted. And what were the kinds of things that they were telling you they were feeling like they weren't allowed to say? Well, I mean, the obvious things. First of all, they were, you know, they weren't allowed to make jokes. uh, That's for sure. (laughs) Maybe you should do a a humor issue. Well, actually, or just put jokes jokes. in. Yes, yes. yes. You know, they weren't allowed to make jokes. and, uh, you know, we've basically become, a, you know, I've noticed that the, we, 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 the only people who are allowed to make jokes are, are late night TV hosts. Well, they're not allowed to be funny anymore. Evidently. But they're not allowed to be funny anymore. And, uh, well, as you know, I mean, you've written about this as authoritatively as anybody. I mean, the, the giving and taking of offense has become the most prescribed activity in America, when in fact it is likely the activity for which an open society was designed. So, but that's gone. But it wasn't just the jokes. It was just the feeling that, um, that everybody was on one slippery slope or another and sliding 
straight to right wing hell or left wing hell. Yeah. Uh, and um, and lots of people I know were really discouraged and dejected about this. And you know, I I'm curious to talk with you about this because the observations that you're making, and I'm agreeing, and I've been making them also for several years now. Yes, it's have. it's easy to talk about them in a sort of generic way. I I keep you know it's easy to sort of sit here and say, oh, you're not allowed to be funny anymore. You can't you know explore provocative ideas. That's all true. But I I feel like in order to maybe put this era past us, we have to be able to talk about this in a way that's more precise or think about how this actually came to be. And I think that you, you're you in a unique position to, to weigh in on this because you've been in this business. You've been in the business of words and ideas and publishing for decades now, and you've seen the, the culture change and people's sensibilities change. What is your diagnosis? What do you well, look, think happened? It used to be that the duty of an intellectual was to be sharp and controversial. Uh, and now the duty of an intellectual is to be nice and agreeable to his or her side, to bring uplift to, to, to the, either the sharks or the jets. And it was, it was a complete inversion of the nature of intellectual discourse. And by intellectual, I'm using the term very broadly. I'm talking about people who write in newspapers too. Do you think almost the word intellectual, it, has it become a dirty word? If inherently it does have to do with sustaining a sort of conflict within your own head and also being willing to engage in conflict with others, is there something that's just anathema about it to these new, these? cohorts of people coming up? Well, we're living in a new anti-intellectualism, and in such a culture, yes, the word intellectual um, might be anathema, but pity the culture that can't, that has no use for the word intellectual. Really. I mean, there's some words in American English that have been abused, debased, scorned, demeaned, and so on, without which I can't live. One of them is intellectual. Another one, for example, is soul. I can't live without the word soul, even though, believe me, I'm aware of just how tacky a word it often is. But, you know, I, one has to hang on desperately to certain words because despite the, their degradation in, in common usage, uh, they describe or invoke things that other words do not. So, for example, self does not say the same thing as soul, even though self is a very useful word. Especially now, um, yes. Right. Journalist does not say the same thing as intellectual. Professor does not say the same thing as intellectual, even though journalists and professors are also intellectuals in some way. Not all of them. Not all of them, to put it mildly, my friend. No, no. But, but so I think, I mean, I have always used that word with enormous pride. My teachers taught me that that's what I should want to be when I grow up, and they were right. And I've also used it as my professional designation. I mean, in the old days, when on passports, you would put down the profession, if we still had that, I would write intellectual. Of course, it would get me into trouble with passport control almost everywhere I went. But 
you would really put intellectual on your yes, passport. Yes, that's what I that's am. Remarkable. That's what I am. So you yes. were. I know you don't like public intellectual, but you were a known figure. You were a. You were known as a person who thought and wrote and edited for a living during a time period where the public intellectual, whether you like that term or not, occupied a glamorous place in society. There was yes. a rock star valence to it. You know, a public intellectual, I think especially a male one, might be treated as the kind of celebrity who might date an actress or a model. You yes. have been involved with many well-known women over the years. Oh, um, now you're getting I, into the higher I, reaches well, no, of I intellectual was, I, life. <laughs> you were involved for many years with Twyla Tharp, I believe, who is was, much yeah. older than you. Is it fair to say that the 1990s were the last hurrah for that kind of dynamic? The public, the sort of glamorous intellectual, had had he or she been ushered out of the culture by at least the early aughts? Where's your timeline with all of this? I guess, I don't know. I mean, there are, I mean, I always find intellectuals unspeakably glamorous, even when I disagree with them, uh, which is frequently. Um, I think there are intellectuals now. I mean, I think that... But they're not going on TV. They're not, like, being... No, they're I not think in that's the society right. pages. I think, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, by the way, it's not a bad thing for intellectuals not to be in the society pages. Um, I speak from experience. I'm curious, how do you, as an editor, as a publisher you are bringing this publication into the world that's really old school it's it's not online is it is it uh it's not is it even anachronistic say, it's, it's archaic it's archaic okay it's not on parchment so let's just be clear no it's about not that. on it's vellum not, that's correct it's and it, it will be online oh, yes, it, no, oh it will be online okay, there will let's be, be some version of it online but yes, not the whole not, pieces but you it's not like somebody can go and read an entire essay or a no that will take place we're okay. now working that out it's not going to be the way other people do it but um but we are no, no. It would be, we it would be very foolhardy not to take advantage of the, this technology of distribution. I mean, the the problem of the distribution of essays and ideas has been permanently solved. Nonetheless, here's what you're faced with: you are yeah. bringing forth this product. These are very. This is very. There's over 400 pages. It's the mm -hmm. first issue. The individual pieces are often quite long, mm -hmm. and you're bringing it into a culture that, you know, I've seen people refer to articles as takes. I've seen people who really right. think that the take is the default setting of any right. sort of written written piece of nonfiction. Now, right, like, so, like Kant's take on reason or Hegel's right. take on history. So right. you're, you're not only bringing this, uh, this publication, it's, it's, it's in a totally different time signature than, than what, the, right. than what the metronome, you know, the, the, that's the, a good, the, that's the, a good metaphor. For we're it. moving yeah, so yeah. quickly and, and your setting is just something totally different. So there's, there's that. And so there's going to be a, a difficulty in, in digesting the ideas. Well, but you see, I don't think so. Let's let's stop there okay. and talk about okay. that. Okay, because there's part two of this question too, but yeah, I will, go ahead. I look forward to it. I think that, firstly, your musical analogy is a good one, and there are composers, uh, Wagner, Bruckner, Debussy, uh, there are composers, and there are filmmakers also, by the way, who operate at a different temporality. And if you want to get the enormous uh, benefit of the art that they produce, you have to slow down and surrender to their pace, to their tempo. Terry Malick 
put out a film last year called The Hidden Life that was easily the best film I saw last year. And it's three hours long, and it goes slowly. And if it's too slow for you, the problem is you, not the film. Um, so sometimes, you know, I am not prepared to let the almost deranged acceleration of life have the last word in the activities to which I myself am committed. Uh, so that's that's the first thing. Secondly, I think that there are in absolute numbers hundreds of thousands and even a few millions of people who are sick of the speed and who are trying to think their way through this and who take ideas seriously and are tired of being hectored um, and don't have bumper stickers on their cars and actually will welcome will welcome the return of what used to be called the essay. You know, I remember Bill Sapphire many years ago did did contemporary literature a great disservice when he decided to call his column in the Times essay. An essay cannot be <laughs> no 750 words. No newspaper editor would allow that now, right. Right. It cannot be seven. Well, right now, 750 words is an essay because we asked for 400. Right. Well, it's, it's a long take. It's, right. It's a long words. take. Right. It's an, it's an endless take. So I think, in fact, that there are many, many people out there, um, wherever there is, who will welcome um, the opportunity to sit down and read about something about subjects that they know impinge directly on the way we live now. Now, my view as an editor has always been that you don't understand your product if you believe that every article in it is for every reader. In my view, in my view, if if every reader finds three or four things out of the twenty that we published in the first issue that they like, then we have succeeded. So, no, I'm not. I mean, we have to find these people, but they're there. I have no doubt that they're there. They are there. but do Well, you, you know they're there. I, they, they are definitely there. One of the things that I notice routinely and that I, I think about when I, when I see enterprises like yours, there's, there's such a willful misconstrual of, of intent not only content, but intent really primarily that it's people end up reacting to the reaction more than the actual material. And I would, I would hope mm -hmm. that the readers who would be, you know, predisposed to reading this kind of publication would be less susceptible to that kind of process, but it's, it's definitely a factor. And plus, you know, I don't think we're telling tales out of school here. You have an added issue, which is that you, uh, were part of the, you know, the the sort of mass exile of of a number I of was, men during the fall of the fall of yes, the fall of the fall of man is what I yes. refer to as uh -huh. the fall of 2017. So yes. you're you're going against a tide not only in terms of how how the publication will be received intellectually, but just sort of on a pop cultural level in terms of the gender wars, you are going to have a lot of probably. Uh, think pieces slash hit pieces written about you and the publication. Like how how dare he resurface? And so I'm sure you have, uh, I'm, I'm sure you have your your defenses lined up. But how can you talk about how you anticipate yeah. that kind of thing and and what you plan to do about it, if anything? Well, look, obviously this is something I thought 
I've thought about a great deal. There were some things that I did 20 or so years ago, a little less, that I regret and that I apologized for. I'm not here to make excuses. I made my apology and I went away. Uh, my apology was sincere. Uh, in one case, I tried to contact a certain individual, but to no avail, so that I could make the, the apology in a properly human way. And I went away. Uh, I, my apology was not casuistic. I didn't try to draw distinctions uh, between this and that. I have no doubt also that I was grossly and unfairly treated. Uh, there were serious issues of due process. But as I don't really want to get into this because I'm not a whiner. And, you know, I did my introspection. I went into exile. And my conscience is clear that, um, that my, my exile was sufficient punishment. If somebody wants to agree with, disagree with that, they can go right ahead. You know, there are greater crises facing this society and this culture than the future of my career. And I'm not anyway interested in telling my quote story or my journey or my redemption or any of that American nonsense. Anyone who doesn't want to buy Liberties or read Liberties because I'm the editor is free not to buy it or read it. Uh, you know, it still is that free a country. Um, but uh, I'm not going in any way to engage in, in, in debate at that level. I'm just not. You know, we live in a culture of unforgivingness. We live in a culture that expects purity of individuals living and dead. Uh, we live in a culture of people who seem to think that um, they, they themselves have never been guilty of offenses or infractions that they read about. And here I'm referring mainly to men, not to women. This is where we are now. This is where we are now. There's a lot to be said about unforgivingness and purity in American political and social and cultural life. And some of these issues will be addressed in the pages of Liberties. In the first issue, I have an essay in which I explain what it was that I learned from my, uh, my very unpleasant experience. Yeah, you actually write... I wrote what I wrote. I yeah. mean, again, I let people go and read it. I mean, it's not anything I want to paraphrase because it's actually very important. I chose my words Okay, carefully. I was going to read a few lines, but I, I will refrain if you... Well, that's very... Rather, I, thank I, you for I your didn't, forbearance. But I, I'm not really interested in relitigating the specifics of what you were accused of, but I am actually curious what you might have to say sort of anthropologically about all of this like what has it changed the way you think about about gender about relationships you know just, and just for reference you know we're not going to get into specifics but if our if any listeners are just completely at sea here you your name did appear on this quote unquote shitty media men list that that emerged and and I am on record as saying that I was opposed to the way that list was distributed I 
think that it was distributed, distributed. the way it was, it was composed. completely out of line. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was I, the I most have, outrageous. Yes. There's no. It is not how uh, any of this should be gone about. There's so, a gentleman on that list. I mean, next to my name, it said something like workplace infractions or something like that. There's a gentleman on that list. Uh, next to his name, it said rape allegations, and yeah. this was composed by a journalist. I mean, this was really a disgraceful moment. Were you aware that it was coming, or were you? Did it just? Were you? No, blindsided? I mean, you know, what can I say? The the no, no, it came when it came. I mean, no, 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 uh, no, I was not. Um, but Leon, I. I would but be, go ahead, back to your no, larger question. because you, yeah. uh, you, have, you have a reputation for a lot of things, but one of them is real championship of women, deep yes. friendships with women, friendships yes. with powerful women. I yes. mean, we could go down. And powerless so, women, both, yes. And so how conscious have you been throughout your life of what we now call gender relations? So gender was not a word that people were really right. throwing around in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Like, how, what, how did you sort of see yourself as a man in the world? Now that is a huge question, and we hardly know each other. No, 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 here's what I would say to that. Um, let me collect my thoughts, because it is a, a vast question. Just as I would not want to live in a world without other people, I would not want to live in a world without women. When I say I would not want to live in a world without women, I mean that women see things that I don't. They actually see more than I do. Like what? See, what do you mean? Well, they, they reckon that the women, I've learned things from women because as I write in Liberties and my recent experience has really italicized this, this idea for me, no matter how smart one is and no matter how, how learned one is, one always carries with one the limitations of one's own standpoint and one's own experience. And without the experiences and the standpoints of other people, one would be blind to a great deal. And if one were to be blind to a great deal, one would, among other things, hurt people. And so... I have always had a vast appetite for difference, for people and things unlike myself and unlike the traditions that I have inherited, because I already am me and I already have those traditions. Uh, so that's part of the answer. I have never regarded myself as seriously disrespectful of women, to put it mildly, to put it mildly. Um, I don't I think th I've ever seen you accused of that, by and, the way. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I think that erotic life and intimacy are inherently ambiguous, uh, inherently complicated, full of misunderstandings and misreadings. Um, I think that desire cannot be legislated or argued one way or another, which is both why it's so attractive and so dangerous. I think that, you know, one of the great things about being a man is that there were women in And I ha I tried, and I say this, I'm, I'm just thinking out loud, I'm not being apologetic here, because I don't have, in this regard, very much to apologize for. Um, for that reason, I have always tried to further the 
not just the careers, but the minds and the sensibilities of women the way I have those of men. Um, I mean, there were issues of the New Republic in which the entire back of the book was nothing but pieces by women writers. And was that intentional? No, it, actually, the good news is that it, that it wasn't when we okay. came to put the issue together. It wasn't together. the woman's issue, I hope. No, it wasn't the women's issue. Exactly. Exactly. It wasn't the women's issue. Well put. So, you know, people can think what they think. I mean, there are 35 years of issues of the New Republic that they can go and consult to see um, what the nature and intensity of my interest in the talents of women is and was then. You know, I don't know what to say. Life, my, you know, if you ask about my life as a man, uh, then um, you remind me of one of the many reasons I don't like reading Philip Roth. Uh, <laughs> I, so was, I was going to mention Philip Roth. Some, some, do you ever feel like you're a character in a Philip Roth novel? Oh, God, no. Oh, God, no. no. Not, the, not the protagonist, necessarily. No, but those books are so based on a fear of women and... Uh, need to dominate women well philip needs to dominate everybody including his own characters but um but no no um no i mean historians will record that in my time there were many many jewish male in writers and filmmakers for whom the single most pressing question in the cosmos is what do women want um you know, or, you know, how will I, quote, get laid, close quote. I mean, it's pathetic. It's really pathetic. I once got into a very serious quarrel with my beloved friend Bello about this. Saul Bello. Yeah, yeah. I reviewed, it was a really quite a tale. We were good friends for a long time. And he wrote a novel called More Die of Heartbreak, which was an interesting novel. And it was interesting for me because by the time he wrote it, he had, fallen under the spell of certain theosophical and metaphysical ideas, ideas, and he and I had been talking for a long time about whether such ideas could ever have a place in the novel, which always struck me as a form that was devised in part to confront the absence of certainty about such things. And then he went and created a character, a kind of Goethean botanist, who embodied these these theosophical, quasi-mystical ideals. And I defended the book on those grounds, but there were some misogynistic elements in the book, and I wrote a review in my pages defending the novel against its many, many critics, uh, but saying that his portrait of women was surprising and unbecoming in a novel that seeks to address some of the most fundamental philosophical questions of human existence. At which point, Saul, as they used to say, broke with me and went on TV and accused me of a left-wing rant, and we didn't speak for years. Then we were That was back God, when intellectuals were on TV. Uh, in the good having, well, right. in, in fighting on TV, for all it's to worse see. than on TV, Megan. It was on Larry King. <laughs> Can you imagine? Well... Yes. But in any case, thankfully, we reconciled and the story ended well. But no, no, no. I um, I mean, that's the I guess the long answer to your question. I make no apologies for my interest in a life of the senses. Uh, you know, I think it was I'm not this is going to be misquoting him, but I think it was Wallace Stevens who says that the worst thing is not to live in a physical world. So that's what I have to say about that. 
at idea i was I, I there were six people in the office and four of them were women uh i mean i i you know people don't want to read liberties because they think that i'm a you know some sort of fiend that is entirely their right <laughs> well they might want to read it for that reason oh yes of course right the mentorship dynamic yeah. especially when it's a, a younger Yes. Woman and an older man, it is inherently charged. It's almost always there is some sort of I mean, maybe I'm being hyperbolic. I'm just no, I'm actually thinking out loud here. There is some probably erotic component that one person is feeling. Uh, if, I think if that's not, a little too far. I okay. would say that. Not, I mean, an, an unconscious uh, sorry, an unconscious sort of eros, uh, some kind of charge that is inherent in that dynamic because of the power differential and the fluidity of the power differential, which I um, want to talk about anyway. Well, say what we you're could, going to say. Uh, sorry. I don't mean, to, I don't mean. To no, not at all. You. I'm thinking no, out no, loud. No. So feel free to um, think out loud and interrupt me with your. Out loud look, thinking. I think that uh, one of the things I learned, let me begin this way. One of the things I learned in my exile and reflected on was that what is now known as the power dynamic, is something that was more present than I realized at the time, that it was actually objectively writ into the structure of the situation, and not only something that it was up to me to bring or not to bring to it. Um, that was not something that I was sufficiently aware of all those years. Not that I acted on it in miserable and gross and and swinish ways, but I was not, I was not sufficiently aware of that. I think that the teacher-student relationship does have, if you want to say an erotic component, I would have said a kind of spiritual intensity that has always attended it and accounts in part for its magic, for its enchantment. I mean, I had, um, uh, there was a young man who was once my student, with whom the intensity became virtually erotic as well. If it's conducted properly, not improperly, if it's conducted properly, it will have that charge. It will have if that charge. If it's conducted charge. Properly, properly, it will have that charge. Properly, because when one is in the, when one is actually shaping a younger person's sensibility or mind or soul in any way, that is a phenomenal responsibility, and it is a fundamental act of human relations. And acts that fundamental have to have such a charge. Now, that does not mean, obviously, that one should be sleazy or scuzzy about it. That's not what I'm saying. But yes, there are intensities that attend that relationship. Again, um, if what you're doing is, is about fundamental questions, I mean, you know, it's, um, you know, not every, it, it doesn't attend every master apprentice relationship, though it can. And certainly when one reads about the, workshops of the Florentine painters, in some cases, it clearly did. Yeah, yes. Right? It, it clearly did. They're all going to be me too. Well, I mean, or whatever. But I mean, but, but again, it's not about putting a hand on somebody. 
even though I must say I was, this will be verified, I was a very accomplished, all-purpose, equal opportunity hugger. Uh, you were, I, I believe the, the word things, handsy has been used to describe yeah, but, you. No, but it was a hug. I was okay. one of the many things about the Sopranos that I admired. Um, but but I do think that there will be this intensity. And I, you know, and I have, with the 10 or 15 people that I refer to still as my, quote, best students, I'm still in touch with them and their lives and their families and their innermost thoughts and their work. And they're men, and they are men, and they are women. They are straight, and they are gay, because that's what what it's like. That's what it's like. So no apologies about that. One of the lines of inquiry that I always find conspicuously absent from the Me Too discussion is the degree to which the women in those especially in those mentorship dynamics, a, a very young woman, the conventional wisdom is that the man has all the power. She has none of the power. But in a lot of cases, she has more of the power. I mean, power, when I said earlier, it's it's fluid. I think when we talk about these issues of consent and these sexual encounters, whether it's between two college students or you know, any anyone in the world of any age, the idea that one person based on their identity, their their sex, their age, their their, you know, professional status, whatever it is, the idea that one person autom- always and automatically has more power than the other person is is really reductive. I mean, power gets volleyed back I and think, forth all the time. I think that's correct. I think I should say that one shouldn't hide behind that complexity and put one's hands on one's students, obviously. No, but, you know... But I do think that you're right. Certainly in in adult relationships and in the erotic dimension of those relationships, power moves back and forth if the relationship is at all interesting. You know, one of the things that, you know, in, in reading about, you know, some of the... You know, just in following the, the Me Too stories over the years and reading about some of these things, I remember, I, I look back on my own time being a young woman in my 20s and in publishing, you know, or as a as a student, whenever, you know, there were a lot of occasions when I was taken, you know, some, an, an older man would sort of take me under his wing professionally. And I, I was very aware and I, nobody ever crossed the line in any uh, meaningful tangible way. I want to be clear about that. But I definitely was aware at the time that I was kind of, I had an advantage because mm-hmm. I was a young woman and there were going to be men that if I had lunch with them or I had a drink with them or I, you know, let the conversation kind of drift where it wanted to go and we didn't strictly talk about professional things all the time, that I, that was going to uh, give me certain leverage. And yes, and I wondered I... at the time if if male peers of mine perhaps didn't have that advantage at that time. I mean, a young woman, a young 25-year-old woman arguably has more power in the world than a 25-year-old man. Now, feminists and others are going to get furious with me for saying that and that's a, a huge yeah, generalization and maybe you felt what that was the, like the kind yeah. of, I, I i have felt what that's, what that's kidding, like in maybe. a different way um i mean maybe that's the kind of thing that one should write try to write five thousand words about rather than just you know well, spew, sp- spew, my, spew out spew out on a on a podcast interview but you know do, did you but look what you had going for you 
was is is the <laughs> well the we never energy. met just to be clear you, this is all right. speculation right, I, right, I, right 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 <laughs> but what you had going for you was the pathetic inability of many men to control their urges but uh, that's that's an evergreen desire, that's that's desire what... doesn't just make one strong it also makes one weak uh and that's one of the many complexities of desire uh and I agree with what you're saying. Again, I don't think, I think that in the same breath, not as a to-be-sure sentence, one has to add, but of course there are objective hierarchies of power that could damage you if that have to do with gender. And to certain, be sure, certain, yes. To be sure. But did you find yourself mentoring more women than men or feeling that you owed them something extra because they were women and they had historically had a disadvantage? No, actually, I never felt that because the women, I only hired immensely gifted young people to work with me, and they all seemed immensely gifted. They were men and women, they were black and white. And I never, no, I was never out to remediate anything, not at all. I never actually, even after everything that happened, I never did the count just to see how many men and how many women worked for me, but it was. There were a lot of both, I can tell you that. And, I mean, it made really a lot of both. Um, and, you know, there were, uh, I just looked for young people whose minds interested me and who kindled to the kind of things that we were doing at the back of the book of the New Republic. And sometimes, and I found them in many different ways. I mean, my custom was I had two or three or four friends at various universities, and once a year around February, I would call and say, who do you have for me? Or I would read something that somebody wrote, or somebody would tell me that they know somebody. Or, uh, But I have to tell you, finding younger writers is n- not just one of the sacred obligations of what I do, but it is one of the greatest pleasures of what I do. I mean, I've always felt about all the traditions that I've inherited. That if you inherit a tradition and develop it and live within it, but you don't transmit it, you've betrayed it. And I always look for what I call the heirs. Not my heirs, because I'm an heir too. But I'm always looking for people who will see to it that this tradition, which I regard as immensely valuable, will not die on my watch. Uh, I'm very, very, it's one of the things I live for about all the traditions that I live in. Uh, so I was, um, no, I, if you asked me, were my relations with my male mentees different from my female mentees? I don't think so. I mean, there were a couple of movies that I went to with some of my, we used to call them interns, that I, male interns that I may not. No, but that's not true. I'm thinking back. I, you know, I've never thought about this. Wait, before. you didn't go. To, you went to movies with female interns and not yes, male interns. Yes, yes. But why I wouldn't went, you take a male intern to the movies? I did. I did. In fact, one of those movies, believe it or not, and it was a joy, was Pootie Tang. Yes, I did because their films come out, and we are cultural and social critics, and it is the responsibility. I mean, certainly, if tens or hundreds of millions of Americans. Are seeing something, we have to know what it is. I even told my assistants at various times that I expect them to go see Rambo. Wait, what was Pootie Tang? Can you can you what re- was re- Tang? refresh my memory? Megan, Pootie Tang was a hilarious 
comedy directed and I think written by Louis C.K. about uh, a, a black superhero in the inner city. That was, That's who Pootie Tang was. This was but directed was done, by Louis C.K.? How did uh-huh. I miss this? And okay. it, oh, it's hilarious. It was a kind of surrealist comedy, completely over the top, mildly deranged. Uh, Wanda Sykes was unforgettably funny as a hooker with a golden heart called Biggie Shorty, I seem to remember. But it, it is simply hilarious. I mean, it's... Uh, it, you you should see it. You should see it. But in I, any case, I, it's probably not seeable anymore. Oh, uh, you know what? It, well, if not, I think I may even have the disc. Um, but in any case, I'm a big DVD buyer because I don't, you know, lots of things that interest me will never be streamed. I'm chuckling because I am remembering the days when being in publishing, having these sorts of quote unquote glamour jobs. So much of the job, it was about being competent, being able to put a sentence together, write, edit, et cetera. Right. But so much of the job was about just being part of the ethos of the office yeah. and having a you know sort of sportsmanlike uh, attitude. There was a sort of pride in in the gala in, in being able to participate in gallows humor or having a toughness yes. and an emotional resilience ab- about it and i think that like when we talk about this now and we, we talk about these generations being not as resilient i we may we we may tend to over romanticize our, our resilience you know in the midst of all of that and sort of having this this swashbuckling time and priding yourself on your ability to roll with things you know, there were pretty consistently moments of awkwardness and ickiness that you simply have to endure because it's part of the package. You know, you look back, it, it is, and it of is course. easy to look, suppress these things. And, look, and there it, were ickiness and awfulness. There were also office romances, some of which ended in marriage, uh, some of which didn't. You know, when people worked 12 hours a day, six days a week, it wasn't at all clear at the time where they would meet anybody else. There also was a great deal of rigorous and difficult and taxing work. The standards for my pages were extraordinarily high. And the first thing, when I would meet any interns at the New Republic, but especially mine, they would come in and we would talk. And I would give them the the, the 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 homily about what we would do, and then the last thing I would say is, but above all, don't fuck up. We, you know, I expected an enormous amount from my interns or students or mentees. This was not just about long lunches and and furtive flirtations and resume building. Not at all. But were the long lunches? It part long of the, okay, but were the sorry, not the long the, yeah. the 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 after the after work drinks was that part of was that a sort of unspoken requirement? Just absolutely not, absolutely not. I mean, I went out for drinks with um, my male and my female um, assistants occasionally to reward ourselves for a job well done. I'd take them across the street for a good meal. Many of them would come to the house and meet my family uh, in both my marriages. You know, uh, many of them knew my little boy. Those that were Jewish would sometimes need counseling about 
uh, Jewish practices. One of them asked me to give the speech on the Sabbath that marked his engagement. Uh, no, 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 we were not. Um, I guess what I'm saying, I guess what I'm getting at here is this, which is relevant to what we're talking about, is that the climate was not just, and in some cases even mainly professional. It was something else. Um, I've always said that I have not had a career, I've had a calling. And I am one of those very fortunate individuals who's been able to make a career out of my calling. I'm really, really lucky. And what? how do you define your calling? Thinking, writing, reading, and contributing to the discussion of ideas that matter to the personal and collective lives of the people with whom I live. That's what I... Good answer. I, that was... Thanks. Um, that is, you know... That's what that's how I that's what I consider my calling to be. What would you say to a young person starting out now oh, who wants to be in the world of ideas? Is there any hope? You just tell them to I would say be strong, else? be strict. Uh, you may I would tell them that there is a long and honorable tradition of intellectuals and writers and artists who did their work while earning their living in another way. Um, you know, from waiting tables to working at an insurance company in Hartford. Um, I would say that I would try to discuss with them the special opportunities and the special challenges that the wide, wide digital West, um, that the wild, wild digital West poses for them. I would tell them to do whatever they can to stay true to their calling. I mean, the first thing I need to know about any human being is what his or her horizon is. What do they aspire to? Do they have a calling? That's really what I, that was always more important to me than a resume. And what it kinds really of answers was. did you get to that question? You actually, you would say very, to people, you would ask them what their calling was. You would use that word when you interviewed people. I would say, who do you want to imitate? Is mm -hmm. what I would say. Mm -hmm. And by the way, when, when it came to their writing, one of the first bits of advice I would tell them is choose very carefully who you want to imitate, because when you start out, you will be imitating people and don't make the wrong choice. <laughs> what do you think is the worst choice people make? Oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, there are many ways to answer that question. Um, you know, there are many bad models out there. Um, I remember when I started writing about politics, because uh, I did not start out writing about politics. I began to worry that my political writing was a little bit obscure, and I'm sure some people still worry that it is. But what I would do early on is before I wrote a political piece, I would spend an hour just marinating myself in any page in, in pages by Orwell, just so that that clarity and that 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 mixture of calm but force with force would would infect me. Now. I would never read Orwell if I was writing about religion or literature or culture, because that degree of clarity seems a little spurious to me in those realms. But I do think, you know, one should one one should look for the right influences. But I, for me, what mattered was a sense of calling, and I would say, who do you admire? Who do you want to imitate? Uh, and so on. Um, and that was the, you know, if if, if there were a way. If there were, if you'll pardon this dirty word, if there were a metric for measuring horizons of people, I would know a lot about people if I were to know that.
Um, and so I was looking, and that's why the people who worked for me were not all from either Harvard, Yale, or Princeton by any means, by any means. But do you ever, I mean, I'm, I'm listening to you now, I'm thinking, like, do you ever, do you find that the calling, the horizon is, um, it, it is so radically different than, than what we thought of as a horizon that you can't even comprehend it? I mean, pe- yes, there are people but- out there whose horizon is they want to like make memes. I mean, they want to, it's like yes, stuff we, and- we couldn't even get our, we didn't even have the vocabulary to talk about the things that they see as their calling now. Look, and before that, there were people whose horizon was that they wanted to do litigation. I mean, uh, you know, I mean. But we knew what litigation was. That was a concept you know that we could it, get our minds let's around. Let's put it this way. We, by which I mean the intellectually and spiritually and imaginatively creative community, though a community is exactly what it's not, we are countercultural. I mean, nobody ever promised us a rose garden. I say that as a true son of Brooklyn. And it was never, you know, during the Depression, my, my older friends and my teachers used to tell me that in the years after the Depression, it was easier to set out to become an intellectual because everybody was broke, so you'd be broke too. Um, that is, to put it mildly, not the case anymore. But we were never promised success for this. You know, there was a brief period in time when, when, when critics could get tenure at universities for writing and partisan review, but that time passed very quickly. Um, so... You know, nobody who goes into this line of work should go into it for the money or for the or for or for the celebrity. Do you think there is a counterculture anymore? I think there's always a counterculture. I think that countercultures are very easily co-opted, mainly by corporate capitalism, uh, uh, but also by The New York Times, which is, you know, Probably the most poisonous influence on American cultural life right now. But um, wait, say more about that. The New oh, York Times. I will. I will. But wait, we're talking about okay. something else. Um, but countercultures are co-opted with increasing speed. So, for example, um, everybody remember everybody did a double take and got really offended, and it provoked all sorts of op-ed pieces and 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 cries of pain. When Dylan agreed to have one of his songs used in a commercial, yeah, of Victoria's Secret, remember, and I, uh, and the so Beatles, many cases of these, I and the Beatles, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. hip hop, as far as I can see, went from being countercultural to being corporate um, in in the speed of light. Do you see Donald Trump's base as a counterculture? No, I see Donald Trump's base. Well, insofar as it is an aggrieved minority. And these days, countercultures are defined as aggrieved minorities, which is not at all what a counterculture is. Um, yes, of course, it's a counterculture, but basically, it's simply the most successful until now, the most politically successful identity interest group that has ever existed. Is how I see his base. I mean, you know, after the 2016 election, many people, some of them are friends wrote wonderfully warning the Democrats of the pitfalls of identity politics, but the real victory of identity politics was the election of Trump. Of course. Well he had cornered the market on it. Well yes, but it's the else. same yes, it's the same method. It's the same phenomenon. 
do you see, for instance, the signatories of the Harper's letter, six of at least six of whom are in the pages of the first issue of Liberty? Yeah. The Harper's letter, obviously, it was the open letter about yes, yes. about. Well, I'm I'm not telling oh, you. I'm telling our listeners. Okay, <laughs> but I know you know. No, no, and I think our listeners probably know. But the the Harper's letter is the open letter um, about suppression of heterodox ideas. Just a sort of statement on free speech and academia generally. Whatever people can look this up. So, do you see that sort of movement, that sort of gesture, as a countercultural expression? I do. I do. I think that the Harper's letter, which I would have signed in a heartbeat, was right and necessary. However, I will say that at one of the intentions of liberties is not just to complain about the suppression of certain kinds of discourse, but to just model the damn discourse, to just say it. Mm-hmm. You know... The discussion about freedom of speech in an open society is uh, is obviously a fundamental discussion, but it's also a prolegominal discussion. In other words, after we've discussed freedom of speech, I would like writers now to speak freely, and not just about their right to speak freely. Right. Um, so it's really time not to move on, because you know I, I got a letter from a friend the other day saying, who's interested in cancel culture anymore? And I wrote back saying, well, all the people who were and are being canceled are still interested in cancel culture. And it's not, it's not desisting. Um, my own view, obviously, is that with very rare exceptions, and maybe with no exceptions, um, I think can- cancellation is an obscenity. You know, I, um, when Woody Allen's book was dropped by Hachette, I woke up that morning and discovered to my absolute amazement that he and I were now on the same side. Lo and behold, I mean, one, you know, one of the things we, I hope people, the supporters of cancel culture or the cancelers, I hope they're taking very vivid note of the steady disappearance of and pressures upon such freedoms all around the world right now. And that to propose cancellation and to advocate any kind of suppression of speech at a time of rising authoritarianism in our country and around the world is the fucking height of irresponsibility. Really. I mean, you know, and, and these freedoms that we have, I don't mean to sound, I don't mean to make a sermon, but we now know if anyone, you know, you don't have to be a student of history anymore to understand the fragility of these freedoms. It used to be that you had to know history. Now you just have to go online and look at the news. And anyone who's playing with this fire is really um, betraying the fundamental principles of what we all, I think, believe, conservatives, liberals, and many progressives. So what do you have to say about the New York Times? The New York Times has reduced culture to politics to a degree that has not happened since the 1930s. Since the, you know, it's the New York Times is, um, you know, it continues to surprise me, though it shouldn't. But um, it they they have completely politicized culture. They teach that culture is politics by other means. 
They judge works of art by political criteria. They, um, it's, you know, they publish a review of a retrospective at the Met two years ago of a famous, of a great 19th century American landscape painter called Thomas Cole and writing about his pictures of the Catskills. They wonder what this has to teach us in the Me Too era. The answer is nothing. Do you feel like whoever's writing that really earnestly wants to ask that question or if it's almost like a, I sometimes feel like it's a search optimization issue. Like, like, like if I, if I throw, if we throw me too, or if we throw the word reckoning in or something like that, then, then it's just going to, it's an algorithmic uh, strategy. That's, that's, that's my charitable interpretation. No, I think it's my charitable interpretation is a little less charitable than yours, which is that right now, in the realm of culture uh, and in the realm of the left, the pressures to conform are spectacular. You know, it's more troubling if that critic wrote that um, because he actually has thought this through and really believes that a portrait of a, of, of a New York State mountain in 1825 should teach us something about uh, gender relations of power in 2020 really believes that, that's bad enough. But what's worse is when these things come in as platitudes and cliches and truisms as the prior unexamined equipment, mental equipment. Do you think that being an activist and being an intellectual are inherently at odds? No. I think that they can be at odds. I think there are times when one's uh where one uh they may come into tension but no i think in fact that participation in the battle of ideas for the direction of our country is a form of activism and that what people describe as public intellectuals are really intellectuals acquitting themselves of their duties as citizens uh this is what we do this is what we have to contribute to the country. Since um, ideas matter in an open society, being an intellectual is a form of activism. Should intellectuals march? Sure, because intellectuals can have causes, and we will be judged by others on the merit or, or the lack thereof of the causes that we espouse, that we march for. But, you know, we are not just intellectuals we are also citizens and so sure we should march i mean i actually believe in causes uh i'm not one i don't like what's called explanatory journalism i think it shirks one of the fundamental responsibilities of intellectual and journalistic life now i think that obviously reporting the facts and explaining the complexities of healthcare and climate change and the recession of 2008 and new weapon systems and cyber war is all these explanations and are very necessary because these are complicated subjects but i think that there is a step beyond that that is that i think one should master the subjects about which one is writing one should do all the necessary uh, work of research and study to understand the subject, but that then one should make judgments and take positions and have causes. But not in the same article. You're criticizing the New York Times for doing this very thing. In No, in what I'm criticizing them for is skipping step one and two and going right to three. Okay. No, I think it's all rigged. 
I think one should think oneself to one's commitments. Now, obviously, that's not how commitments are all formed. Obviously, the heart has as much to do with it as the mind, but I think the heart should be critically scrutinized by the mind, and that self-criticism is the highest calling of an intellectual and the surest sign that an intellectual is an intellectually dis- is an intellectually honest man or woman is his or her willingness to offend his own congregation. What is the congregation that you're offending with liberties? Oh, um, I'm offending anybody who doesn't believe in certain basic freedoms, who doesn't believe in universal moral principles. I'm a huge defender of universalism. I think it's real. I think it works. I think it's necessary for justice. Um, I hope to offend anyone who thinks that culture is politics by other means. I hope to offend anybody who thinks that the United States is the worst problem in the world and that democracy is a bourgeois illusion or an overrated dispensation. I hope to offend anyone who doesn't believe in the absolute freedom of the imagination and of its expression. I guess those are some of the communities I hope to offend. By the way, I like giving offense. I also like taking offense. I have no problem. You know, we're not in it. We all have to grow thick skins. We're not writing poems here. We're trying to persuade our fellow citizens to support certain things and oppose other things. This is, this is not just hard work. It can be a little brutal. And everyone should just thicken their skins uh, because um, we can't all be right, really. I mean, we hold contradictory opinions. And obviously, one should refrain from ad hominem attacks and so on. But, um, you know, everybody's gotten a little bit too fragile. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. The idea that we should all take, we should all offend and take offense simultaneously. I think that's something to, to chew on. But you have to have a thick skin. You have to have all well, these you have things to, no, but make this, whole, skin... this whole thing, is, the whole machine is to kind of be oiled in the right way. Well, but you know what that means. One way you get a thick skin, Megan, as you know, is you don't just hang around with people who agree with you. <laughs> that's right. That's the best, the surest But those school. other people won't hang out with you is the problem. No, that's not true, <laughs> no, actually. That's, you know that. That's not true. The surest schooling in skin thickening is keeping company with people who disagree with you and not just seeking the company of people with whom you can nod your heads. You know, nodding, there's a reason that nodding expresses both agreement and sleep. Um, <laughs> nodding along and nodding off are the, that's, the fine one, one leads to the other, I have to tell you. And right now, Everybody has been organized into gangs to the point where people actually can't understand why certain people are your friends. They don't understand it. Now, there are certain issues over which one can lose a friendship or break a friendship, right? There are some times in one's life, not many, and they should be kept to a minimum. You know, Hitler and Stalin were issues like that. But I really think that everybody is self segregating. So as for the, for the sake of uplift, for the sake of uplift, and people think that, and, and this betrays, by the way, a fundamental weakness in the way they hold their convictions. 
Because if you cannot, if you feel that you cannot maintain your convictions and defend them, except in the company of people who share them, then your convictions have a very weak foundation. Well, Leon Weaseltier, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for taking so much time and congratulations on Liberties. It was a pleasure. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was my interview with Leon Weaseltier. His new journal, Liberties, is out this month, mostly in print. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on all the usual places. And for more information, you can visit theunspeakablepodcast.com. Please consider supporting the podcast on its Patreon page at Patreon slash The Unspeakable. This is a completely solo venture, so it really helps me. I hope you'll tune in next week. I'll announce the next guest very soon on the website and all the usual social media spaces. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now for ridiculously low gas prices, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.